0: Is write on audio, presented by me, Tiffany Clare. Write on audio has moved to a weekly format, splitting our content into shorter themed podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any of our editions. Write on audio interviews, inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. In this interview edition of Write On Audio, we speak to Erin Kelly. Erin's debut novel, The Poison Tree, published while Erin was working full-time as a journalist, was adapted for television by ITV and enjoyed a huge amount of commercial and critical success. Subsequent books including We Know You Know and He Said She Said were featured on Richard and Judy's book club. And when an author was required to write the novelization of the BAFTA-winning TV show Broadchurch... Erin was selected. We hope you enjoy our interview with Erin. The interviewer is award-winning poet and write-on team member Mary Walsh.
1: I've always been drawn to poetry more than writing um, books or whatever. I just love the beauty of language and how it can change. Um, Mm. What is it, do you think, draws you to the psychological thriller?
2: Um, well, when I started, I didn't know that I was being drawn to the psychological thriller. I just thought I was writing the kind of book I like to read. Yeah. So I was inspired by classics like Rebecca or The Secret History mm, yeah. by Donna Tartt and um, Bridehead. You're quite not nostalgic, but I've, I've got a theory that everybody has a book that is their type. So yeah. almost like you might keep dating the same person over and over again or variations on the same person there is a book that you read a form of again and again and for me it is something to do with um, you know those years sort of around the end of adolescence and the beginning of adulthood so your Mm -hmm. your student years or your those years when you're first striking out on your own yeah. Um, and the idea of something dramatic happening back then and that coming back to haunt you when you think you've got away with it, when you think everything's OK later yeah. on in your life. So um, I suppose what I'm drawn to then is stories with real thumping good plots. Uh, and but there's also there's got to be more to it than that for me. There's got to be something really interesting happen in the sentences. So um, I very occasionally write poetry myself, but I think of my books as I think every word in my book is as important and carries the same weight as it does in a poem. Mm. So it, in a poem, you've got no space mm. at all. No. You know, every word has to be completely weighed for its meaning and the way it sounds and uh, what it's like being read aloud. And I try to pay the same level to the r- prose in my book. Don't always get there, but that's, that's my aim. So yeah. just really well-written, something Plots and I guess psychological thrillers is naturally where that ends up.
1: Mm, yeah, I can see that. Um, I mean, yeah, um, you you look as if you're incredibly busy. So I'm wondering <laughs> how you fit the rising in,
2: basically. Um, um, well, I uh I do it the same way it's no different from any other job so it is my main job
1: yeah
2: Uh, so it's not something I have to fit around a day job because honestly I don't think I could do that I know people who do so I've got two children age nine and thirteen yeah and essentially I work when they're at school and um the school holidays is a lot of very early mornings uh but yeah that is it's it's a it's a full-time job though I write when they're at school that's when I find it a lot easier to actually work on a book when there's nobody else in the house. Yeah. Um, and when I know I'm not going to be interrupted. I mean, they're very good, they're very self contained. You know, they'll go yeah. and amuse themselves for a while, but just knowing that any minute now, somebody's going to come through the door saying they can't reach something or can I? you know they've spilt something or you know what it's like it's just you um, know where
1: something is that's the usual do you know where something (laughs) is yeah
2: (laughs) mom have you seen my t-shirt what the one you're wearing oh yeah Yeah. um so yeah Yeah. uh but there's a lot more to being an author than just writing the books so there's lots of other stuff that I have to fit in and actually if there's a juggling act it's between um, doing stuff like this which i really yeah. like and which is a mm-hmm. way of um reaching new readers and connecting with people who are writing themselves and i yeah. see that as much part of the job as the writing but um that can become a bit all- consuming and everyone always says oh you must be so disciplined to write so many books and i think well no that's not where the discipline is the discipline for me is in not spending all day looking at cats on twitter or yeah. getting into arguments on twitter or Or getting so consumed with looking outwards and doing so many visits and so much mentoring that I don't have time to write my book. Mm. So that's I'm getting much better. I've got much stronger boundaries. So for example, I've now said I'm not doing any more visits. I've looked at my calendar and I can't really do anything this side of October. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to set those boundaries for myself because Mm. I will always throw myself into that and then I'll look up and I've missed my deadline.
1: Through pen to print, I've just published my first book, age 63. So, congratulations! <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, do you think age matters when you embark on a writing career, or what do you think about people who, who maybe have always wanted to do it but don't have the confidence? Maybe
2: I think it's an incredibly rare writer who has got something important to say before the age of about 30. Yeah. If, I think writers are the opposite of rock stars in a way. So if you look at most, mus- most, most musicians, they yeah. are at their best and they're most creative and they're most energetic when they're in their kind of late teens, early 20s. Yeah. And with writers, I think it's the opposite. It's one of the only crafts where you tend to get better as you go along and every single experience you have is going to feed into what you do and I've always said that my number one tip for writers just starting out is to read and of course you've read more books at 63 than you had at 53 than you had at 43 and every single book every single anthology or short story or play or everything you read feeds into what you've got you've just got so much more in the bank so Mm. in terms of you know does it affect the quality absolutely not in terms of whether the publishing industry just wants to find the new Sally Rooney well that's a different debate it's definitely harder for older writers to get noticed but that's just I think that's more we can put that more down to society's obsession with youth than we can mm. um with the quality of what's being written
1: yeah on that do you think there's a you know I find there's a lot of celebrities writing a bo- <laughs> writing a book and I always think damn it they're doing they're right they're going to get published and it's it makes it hard for other people
2: but having said it's, that, it's a worry no I, I'll yeah. say I'll say this it's um it's a genuine worry now I shop for my children and in a supermarket it's incredibly difficult to buy a book that isn't by somebody with an existing profile mm. some of them are great David Badil is a brilliant children's writer. I have read his books for pleasure just to see what my children got out of them. And he is wonderful. Yeah. Um, others, whose names I won't name, you can just see that someone's waved a check at them and they've thought, how hard can it be? Mm. I'll pop it out. But it does it does worry me, especially because, you know, children's authors don't make a lot of money unless they're Julia Donaldson or J.K. Rowling. And um, there are people who... <laughs> you know, for a lot of children's authors or for a lot of authors, that's all they've got. And that's how I think of it. You know, this is all I've got. I can't do a stand up tour yeah. to supplement my income yeah. and publicity. So live events is increasingly how we sell our books yeah. in this age where most people buy online or prefer to read on Kindle. And that is fine. But um there is nothing as good as a live reading or going on radio actually really helps people to learn about our our books. Mm -hmm. And if I was running a little bookshop in somewhere far away from London and I had a choice between Erin Kelly, who's got a decent readership, but, you know, most people haven't heard of, and Richard Osman. Who am I going to book? Of course, yeah. I'm going to book the person with the profile. So, uh, and, you know, Richard Osman's books are, he does what he does very well. I'm not saying I, I, that I re- the I quality really like isn't it. there. The quality isn't there, but yeah. it's more, the worry is more that it's a vicious cycle because they will hoover up all the radio slots and all of the speaking appearances. Mm. And then the publishers look at their books and they think, well, you know, celebrity authors work really well. Yeah. And then, so we'll we'll look for another one. And then we'll look for another one. And then there will be the rest of us just kind of going, still here, still here. So that yeah. is it is it is a worry. We've seen what it's done in very real terms to children's publishing. And I mm. hope that I hope that adult readers won't be blinded by the name on the cover and they will take each book on its own merit. I mean, I'm, mm. I have faith in readers, not necessarily always in publishers well I
1: suppose they do have to make money as
2: well they do have to make money and it's long been I mean I having said that it has long been the case that um high profile authors have bankrolled the rest of us so Mm -hmm. when I got my first book deal I was being paid quite generously by a company um who you know, they were, I'm trying to think, who were the big hotter authors. There weren't any celebrities at the time. Say um, someone like Penguin um, Random House yeah. uh, 15 years ago, Katie Price essentially paid the salaries of half the people in that building yeah. with her books. Um, now they weren't, I, I I don't think she would mind me saying they were never going to trouble the booker long list. Yeah. But, you know, we do have to be realistic about the fact that they Big celebrity books, people do buy them, and they do subsidize the rest of the industry. Mm. It's just, um, it's just a question of finding the balance, I think.
1: Your book, Watch Her Fall, is about rivalry between ballerinas. Mm. Uh, it was written during lockdown. I, I read. I want just wanted to so ask, why ballet? It doesn't um, it seem was, like a particularly violent
2: profession. Oh, you say that, but if you stop and think about it. Um, ballet is one of the most grueling art forms and you when you see these dancers on stage you think oh they're so pretty they're like little fairies mm-hmm. and there's a famous picture that occasion occasionally does the rounds on social media and it's of a ballerina's feet and she's standing on tiptoe or on yeah. point, as they would call it. And one of the feet is done up in tights and a brand new satin shoe with beautiful ribbons. And the other foot is bare. And you can see that there's blood seeping out of the toes and some of the toenails are missing and they're co- the foot is covered in bruises. And I've always thought that that was that image was part of what inspired me to write the book, because. Yeah ballerinas are hard as nails they're taken away from home pretty much from the age of eight
1: yeah. and
2: they're locked in a boarding school with other dancers and they spend eight hours a day doing physical activity um I mean I don't know about you but I've just been for a swim and that's knocked me out for the rest of the day I certainly couldn't do anything for eight hours except for maybe sit down and write um yeah. and all so so physically it's actually you kind of learn to deny yourself, you know, you've got to keep your weight down yeah. and have the energy to train and perform. And it's so physically they are as I think they're as tough as, you know, somebody who is lifting deadlifting their own body weight um yeah. and they are also but they also have to have this incredibly fragile side if they're going to perform you know if you're going to dance a role like juliet or or the sleeping beauty you have to be able to access those emotions mm-hmm. and then psych- so psychologically they're very complicated people as well and also in terms of rivalry what i thought was interesting now all industries have rivalry but there's a kind of ticking clock when you're a ballerina yeah. very very rarely do they dance leading roles deep into their 30s so when you're 30 you're pretty much on the scrap heap yeah. and there is always somebody coming up behind and the people you trained with are your best friends but they're also the people that you're up against for every role mm. and uh, it's just it's just a very messy complicated paranoid world so yeah. even though on the surface it looks lovely mm. there was just a lot of scope for Real extreme emotion and passion, mm. and I also was. I've also been really fascinated by backstage areas, yeah and I mean backstage of anywhere. So I'm always really interested whenever I go to do a talk at a library or a bookshop, and I spend a lot of time waiting in stock rooms with a cup of tea and a biscuit for the yeah. space to fill up. And I always think, oh, you know, just even a staff room at a school, anywhere that the public don't see, and nowhere is that more um, atmospheric. I don't think than a theatre. Mm. where you've got all these corridors and these secret corners that people can whisper around and you know an empty yeah. stage is a really eerie setting isn't it
1: yeah,
2: um, yeah. and those dressing rooms where you think you're on your own but you're really not so yeah, yeah. that was um the more I thought mm. about it the more I realized it was perfect for a thriller.
1: Do you think your heritage your Irish roots have an influence on you? Do you think that has an influence on your writing? Yes,
2: I think they probably did. So um, I went to, I grew up in Essex, but I went to a convent school and I would say about half of us were from Irish, of Irish descent.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and um, my social life was quite Catholic when I was growing up. So yeah, of course it spread in. I mean, one in, in, in wonderful ways, in many respects, I mean, I grew up, you know, I used to sing mass in Latin when I was at mm. school in the choir and it gave that contributed towards a real sensitivity to music and language and history, which all feed into my books. I actually, my fourth book, The Ties That Bind, was about a gay Catholic writer. Oh, wow. um, and he, uh, like me, he was a plastic paddy, so Irish descent, but born here. Yeah. And um, he, uh he's got a lot to come to terms with just in the things he investigates and you know he's very much torn between two cultures um so yeah it does it does pop back time and again of Mm -hmm. course it does and also anyone who's been raised a Catholic knows all about guilt and since I'm as likely to deal with a killer as a victim in my fiction Mm -hmm. I think one emotion that's really helpful to understand is guilt Yeah, yeah. and I can really dig into that. Although I can feel guilty about, you know, anything. It's it's quite a gift.
1: Well, we we have a a very diverse set of writers at Pen to Print. So come from all ethnic backgrounds. But as the generations pass, you can see that being well maybe watered down. They keep the cultural aspects like the music and and Hmm. singing and dancing and what have you and writing, but the Living as they lived in India, Africa, the Caribbean, Mm. wherever, Ireland gets watered down. Do you think your children will be influenced as much as you were?
2: No, no, they won't. They aren't, uh, even though I married someone of Irish descent and my kids are eligible for Irish passports, they aren't culturally Irish the way that I was growing up. They, um, partly because we didn't send them to a Catholic school, which I think feeds into it a lot um Mm. but no they don't uh, I mean if if we we've never taken them to Ireland and if we do they'll be there as tourists yeah because there's nobody left from when we were little the that generation have either gone or they're here yeah they're in London um so no they definitely have something something gets lost it's not something Mm. that they uh, inhabit the way that we mm. did, but that is that is what happens when people move around. They are well, little Londoners through and through. My kids, yeah,
1: good for them. Yeah,
2: and they see themselves that way. Certain, I, they definitely don't think of themselves particularly as English in that traditional no. sense. You know, they I wouldn't say they identify with, you know, a maypole on the village green or <laughs> anything <laughs> Morris, like that.
1: Morris dancing, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pen to print, we run several competitions. Mm -hmm. different things um can you tell us a bit more how you came to enter these prizes that you've been nominated for or how important do you think they are to furthering your writing profile Um, and career
2: so all of the prizes that I've been nominated for and never won I hasten to add have been since I've been published so I never entered anything when I was starting out but I think they can be incredibly helpful ways Mm. to get noticed so there is um i'm thinking of people i've taught who um i taught laura marshall who wrote friend request and she got the attention of publishing when she won the lucy cavendish prize for unpublished novelists i know lots of people who've forged a career after entering something called the debut dagger which is Mm. run by the crime writers association and that is chance for people to share i think it's the first three or four chapters of an unpublished crime novel and that really gets the industry's attention and there is another one um if you don't mind the sound of me tapping away while i talk to you um because there is a writer i worked with when i was teaching at curtis brown creative as well called alex hay who of course now my screen's frozen who won something else super prestigious and got a book deal off the back of that so they are I mean anything that offers a prize even if the prize isn't publication yeah. which it sometimes is but more often than not it's it's just recognition what it will, you know the industry agents and publishers really do look at these um they really do look at these prizes yeah, uh yeah yeah. The Caledonia okay. Novel Award, there you go, that's the one that Alex Hay, Sorry, what uh,
1: was
2: it? it's called the Caledonia Novel Award.
1: The Caledonia Novel Award,
2: yeah. Yeah, but yeah. apart from anything else, they are a really good chance for you to get used to prepping your work to a professional standard and sharing it yeah. with someone outside your writing group. So, when I was starting out, I didn't, do any courses or or anything I had a very informal writing group so it wasn't done through a library or anything it was just me and a bunch of friends and I got used to showing them my work but it was such a big step to go from that to sharing it with somebody like an agent somebody in the industry in fact I showed it to a a network of friends who weren't there because Mm -hmm. I thought it was I think writing groups are invaluable but sometimes you can fall into a certain rhythm of reading each other's work and when you know because they're very intimate aren't they writing groups you know you bring so much of yourself and your experiences and your insecurities to it sometimes I think you're so aware of what the other writer is trying to do so like you would know she's trying to write a book about her family or he's trying to write a book about his masculinity. And so you will look for that in the, um, you will look for that in the work. Whereas writing for a prize is a really good idea, a really good way to, you know, you know, for the first time that you're writing to somebody who has no idea what your intentions are and they have no, you know, they're not going to spare your feelings because they haven't developed a friendship with you in the group. Have you got something encouraging for our emerging writers into print? So I've got two pieces of advice and they both contradict each other. Right, so, okay. so the first thing is that when you are part of a writing group, publication isn't necessarily the holy grail. It's yeah. not the be all and end all. I often, so when I teach English classes, I teach groups of 15 mm-hmm. and Every single time there will be a couple of people who come away and they say, what this has made me realise is that I am a reader, not a writer. Or they have said, this has made me realise that I write for myself and to get things ordered in my head. And I actually don't want to share this with anyone. Um, And of course, there are people who want to be published and they go on and they are published. Um, But if your ambition for your writing is for you and a very close Group of people, please don't feel that that's not good enough. It's the process of writing that makes you a writer not being published or being paid. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I would say, which completely undermines that, is if you do want to get published, yeah. and of course lots of people do, uh, the only difference between you and every published writer, or rather the only thing that every published writer has in common, is that they finish their book. And whatever you do, do not send unfinished work out to agents or or publishers well i mean agents are probably the first step anyway but an agent is so incredibly busy mine gets 20 or 30 books sent to her a week yeah and if she's got the choice between in fact i think she's um not taking on submissions at the moment but if she has got the choice between a book that is finished and polished and she can take out to publishers and a book that's got a letter saying i'll write the ending when i can think of it of course she's going to take the one that's as close to finished as possible possible, so if you're serious about publication make sure it's finished and proofread and spell checked and you're you know you haven't done it in about 12 different fonts with all the characters names changing halfway through which it sounds so simple it's almost patronizing but you would be amazed how often it happens
0: to erin kelly for being our guest on write on audio today you can find out more about her and order copies of her books at her website www.erinkelly.co.uk we'll post links in the show notes of this podcast if you'd like to share your writing with us you can do so via pen to printorg forward slash get hyphen involved forward slash submit hyphen to hyphen write hyphen on We're always delighted to read your contributions, so if you'd like to see your words in Write On or hear them on this podcast, please get in touch. We'll share this link and all others mentioned in today's podcast as part of our show notes. I've been Tiffany Clare, and you've been listening to Write On Audio. Write On Audio is produced by Chris Gregory, and it's an Alternative Stories production for Pen to Print.